Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Hedrick Smith on the show, who has written the book Who Stole the American Dream? Many of you probably know Hedrick Smith's work. Uh, you probably have to be living in a hole not to know it. Uh, he's won the Pulitzer Prize, and I think he won an Emmy, and he's he's was a reporter for the New York Times for many, many years. He's written many books, one of which was very influential in my own career. He wrote a book called The Russians, which may still be the best work on the Russians, very telegraphically titled book. I like that very much. But in any event, he's one of the premier public intellectuals in the United States. I think we can say that. So it's a great honor for me to have him on the show today. So, uh, Hedrick, I want to welcome you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Marshall. All right. Uh, let me begin the interview by asking you just to say a few words about yourself. As I say, most people probably know who you are, but give it a shot. Well, I'm a lucky guy. I, I'm a guy who's had my continuing education paid for by somebody else, usually Arthur Salzberger at the New York Times, who had me for 26 years trotting around the world from Vietnam to Egypt to Moscow to Paris to Washington to the American South. And then uh, after I got done with that, for 20 years, I've been making documentaries from PBS, uh, raising money for them myself, um, you know, Perestroika, Inside the Terror Network, is Walmart good for America, Wall Street Fix, Can You Afford to Retire, uh, and, I, and and actually a couple of my, my favorite friends, I did a documentary on Dave Brubeck, I'm a great uh, jazz fan of his, and another one on Duke Ellington. So I, I took time to have a few uh, uh, byways and sideways for my own pleasure, and this summer I'm taking jazz piano lessons myself because I, I like to play the piano. Are you really? So, I, think, I think that's great. Uh, that give you a little bit of variety. You happen to catch me at the moment on Orcas Island, which is an island north of Seattle, actually north of Victoria, B.C., perfectly gorgeous uh, pine forest, water everywhere, blue sky, uh, Rocky Mountains snow-capped in, in, the, in the distance. So, uh, life couldn't be better. <laughs> yeah, that sounds terrific. It sounds like you um, you probably went to a liberal art school and took everything they said seriously. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I went to Williams College yeah. in Massachusetts, and uh, actually, I wrote an earlier book, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Russians, and uh, they used in the American history, American civilization course. Uh, many years later, one of my college tutors, a guy by the name of Fred Rudolph, who died recently, a wonderful teacher, used my Russians book as the kickoff book for the start of the senior seminar wow. in American studies. And I asked him why, and he said, because you put together the whole way we go about studying civilizations mm-hmm. and cultures and societies uh, in a book. And I thought it would be great for these kids to get out of America look at another culture, and then come back to America. So I'm you're absolutely right. The liberal arts is deep uh, <laughs> in everything I do. Yeah. Um, I went to a liberal arts college, too, and I'd like to say that I'm a professional dilettante. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, um, you put it one way, I just... Yeah, okay, sure. No, I'm not going to pin you with that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Who Stole the American Dream. It's a very big book, and it really is sort of the history of America since, uh, I don't know, since Henry Ford. Uh, Really, you cover a lot of territory. Why did you write this book? Well, I was sitting out here. I mentioned Orcas Island, not uh, not idly. I was sitting out here on Orcas Island uh, four years ago. Uh, in the fall of 2009, having just finished a documentary on Puget Sound and Chesapeake Bay on the environmental condition of America's waterways. And I was looking at the situation in the housing industry, and Frontline, the PBS investigative documentary program, asked me, uh, David Fanning asked me about doing something in the housing arena uh, and to look at the subprime crisis. And so I began looking into that. And the further I got looking into that, the more I realized that it wasn't really a subprime crisis. It was a prime crisis that that many (laughs) more people who were uh, candidates for prime loans and deserved low interest rates and good terms were suckered into, cheated into, bamboozled into 
subprime loans, and, and, and at that point, the, the, the rate of foreclosures was mounting steadily. We had high unemployment. It was pretty clear the American dream was in trouble uh, on all fronts. I'd done these other programs on Wall Street, on, on retirement, on health care, uh, and I began to see connections between the housing problems and other problems in our economy and what was happening to the middle class. And so I thought, this is bigger than uh, a documentary on housing. Uh, I hadn't written a book for 15 years or so. I, I said, maybe this is the time to go back to writing a book. And so I started the research. The research actually took me, and reporting took me a solid year. I didn't write a word. Uh, I needed to learn a lot about how mortgages work, how the banking system works. Uh, I needed to do reporting in Washington State, and I did some in California and some in Florida and some in Ohio. Uh, went around the country. I got back in touch with people whom I had covered in earlier documentaries for PBS, got in touch with them five, six, seven, eight years later to find out what had happened to them so I could have some continuity to their stories. So it took me about a year. Uh, and then I began to, I sat down about a year later, I sat down in the fall of 2010 and started to write this book. And at the time I started, um, that working title that I signed my contract with uh, Random House for was The Dream at Risk. I started out with the idea that Dream was at risk. And it was only as I did the reporting and did the research and began to put the story together that I came to the conclusion that it wasn't just at risk, that in fact it had been taken away from people from the middle class. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just the market. It wasn't just globalization. It wasn't just advancing technologies. Those things were all involved. Those things all had a, had a very important role. Those things all shook up the American economy. But the way we divide the spoils now, the way the American power system works, and I'd written an earlier book called The Power Game, How Washington Works, the way it's changed uh, is not just by accident. This has been done on purpose. It's been done by people who are enhancing and increasing their own power, their own wealth, at the expense of the middle class. And so gradually the book evolved into the book that is now called Who Stole the American Dream? Because uh, I'm convinced that's uh, what happened. So that's kind of a, a long story of how I got into it. But I really, I, I didn't start with a thesis. I didn't start with a target. I started with a whole lot of questions about what had happened, why it had happened. And I knew from my own lifetime and my own reporting experience that we had moved from a society in which the middle class really shared very widely in America's economic growth, in prosperity, in increasing productivity, in the profits of corporations. And I could see quite clearly that Americans in the middle class particularly, uh, and certainly working Americans, working class Americans, were not sharing in the dream uh, and, in the, and sharing in the spoils in the same way that they had before. And so I really began to dig into how did it go from then to now? How did it go from there to here? How did it go from widely shared prosperity to very narrowly concentrated prosperity? And what were the political factors that played? So this is a, this is a book that goes beyond my earlier book, The Power Game, which was about politics and power in Washington. And it's much more about the interplay of economics and politics, both in Washington and in the private sector across the country. So it was, uh, for me, a major uh, intellectual adventure and, um, uh, and and one of the most rewarding uh, I've ever had, uh, mm -hmm. important to me and, and concerns me greatly as a citizen, uh, not just as a reporter. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm glad you characterized it in that way. I want to actually proceed in um, two steps. In the first step, I kind of want to establish some facts, uh, and you do that very well in the book. And then in the second, um, and I particularly liked the way you put this, I think we should name some names. Uh, that's very bold of you. And, I, and I'm, again, I, I like to encourage that kind of thing. Uh, but, but again, let's begin with uh, what has happened. Uh, you draw a distinction between an earlier era and our era today. Can you characterize those two eras? Well, I just did a moment ago, uh, let me explain it, shared prosperity and, and highly concentrated wealth is one way to look at it. Uh, a, a political system in which uh, bipartisanship works. Um, uh, you know, the parties under uh, Republicans under Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon and the Democrats under Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy fought uh, fiercely for control of the White House and for control of Congress. But once they got in office, uh, both sides set to work disagreeing, but 
set to work to try to, to fashion policies. And they, you know, believe it or not, every year they pass the budget. Uh, we can't we can't pass a budget uh, now. The House of Representatives can't even pass a budget uh, for individual agencies within the budget framework that it's already passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Senate hasn't passed a full budget for several years now. They passed what they call continuing resolutions, which means uh, we gave up. We couldn't do it, and we'll agree to keep the government going as it is with these following tweaks. But that's not really budget making. And you had you had Medicare got passed. You had civil rights legislation. You had major involvement in the in the Cold War, all done on a bipartisan basis. And now we have this stark, polarized gridlock in Washington uh, where it doesn't work. So there's a real before and after story here. Uh, and this is not just nostalgia looking back to the good old days. Frankly, I didn't start out that way. I really started out to find out what was going on. Uh, now, what had happened in the last five years, and then I found out five years wasn't enough, 10, 20, 30, and I began to find that the roots of our current problems are back there uh, in the late 70s and the early 80s. Uh, we had a power shift in Washington. We had a major mental shift um, in the thinking and the ethos of business leaders in, in this country. And so we moved from that era of shared prosperity to uh, this one of fairly narrow prosperity, now, you know, there are a couple of numbers that hit me uh, fairly early in my research, not at the beginning, but in the first few months, that really brought it home to me. If you look at the period from 1945 to the late 70s, roughly three decades, the productivity of the American workforce, which is the real driver of a rising living standard and a more prosperous economy. It roughly doubled. It rose almost 97%. And the median income of the American household, that is, the, the income of the household in, right in the middle, those households right in the middle, rose 95%. So 97% increase in productivity, 95% increase in household income. That meant average people, dollar for dollar, were benefiting from the gains in the growth of the economy. It was being widely shared, uh, not just at the top, uh, where people were obviously making money. And it didn't mean we didn't have poverty. We certainly had poverty back then. There was a war on poverty that was declared back under Johnson and so forth. So there were problems then. I'm not suggesting there weren't. But prosperity was widely shared. Then if you take the period after that, from the late 1970s until 2011, the latest year for which we have good figures, the productivity of the American workforce rose 80%. Not as good as before, but still very, very good, an impressive economic achievement, which generated a lot of economic growth in this country. But the median household income, the income of the average family, rose only 10%. And the main reason it rose only 10% was that more women were working more hours. In other words, it was more hours that was generating more income, not higher pay. And in fact, the Census Bureau told us last year that in 2011 the the typical male worker the median male workers hourly pay that's pay and benefits in 2011 was exactly the same as in 1978 adjusted for inflation so that's three decades of going nowhere in the middle and at the top or the CEOs in the corporations, their income went up 300% during that period. The people at the top of the economy, top 1%, their income went up 600%. From 1979 till 2011, uh, some people named, uh, economists named Emmanuel Saiz at UC Berkeley and Thomas Piketty at the Sorbonne in France and a guy named Alan Kruger at Princeton tell us that 84% of all the increase in income for the nation as a whole, it's the entire growth of the market income of the nation over those years from 79 to 2011, 84% of it, five-sixths of it went to the top 1% of the population. The other 99% had to share the remaining one-sixth. It, it just became totally lopsided. So when I saw those numbers, I said, wow, how did that happen? And why did it happen? And is there anything we can do about it? Because economists will tell you that kind of lopsided inequality is not only unfair in the opinion of lots of people, it's bad for growth. Mm-hmm. When you have high concentrations of wealth 
your economy actually grows more slowly. Our economy grows more slowly, and we can see that right now. Mm-hmm. So I could see the good growth rates back in the earlier period. I could see the sharing of wealth. I could see the narrowing of wealth now and the slow growth rates. And mm-hmm. so that's what caused me to dig into the causes and the history and the narrative. Uh, it doesn't quite go, but I do include Henry Ford, but it really runs from the 70s until now. This is really mm-hmm. the last 40 years of our political and, and economic history. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask uh, what I think will be a, a couple of questions that our listeners might might pose, and, and they're, they're, they, they may sound aggressive, but they're not. I just simply want some clarity on this issue. I think there are a lot of Americans who would say, yes, you're right. There is uh, increasing uh, income inequality and maybe inequality of wealth. We know that. Actually, we talked to Colin Gordon, who's written a whole book about it, and it's definitely true, as you say. But um, so what? Nobody I, – I mean – I know that some people in um, New York were very bothered by it, and they uh, uh, took over Wall Street. But you know, sitting here in Northampton, Massachusetts, I don't see anybody out in the streets worried about uh, these issues. So, in so other words, my, guess, my question is, what, what that's is a the very interesting point? Yeah. Um, what I found out was that uh, if I went back and took a look at why there was more widely shared wealth back in the '70s, in the '60s, in the '50s. One reason is that the middle class uh, was actually energized. It didn't just sit back uh, in Northampton, Massachusetts, or for that matter, all the way across the country. Um, But people got active. Uh, The most obvious thing, and we're about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of it, is the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. Blacks got active, um, and they were demanding civil rights, and they were protesting. They were holding sit-ins, and they were... Uh, doing freedom rides, and they were marching through the streets of Birmingham or Albany, Georgia. They were demanding desegregation of schools. And by the way, the March on Washington was not just for rights, but it was for jobs. It was jobs and peace. Washington. The March for Jobs, jobs and Peace. And That's what it was called. So, yeah. so there was an economic component. I mean, when I covered Martin Luther King and his demonstrations in Birmingham, they were not just looking for the desegregation of the lunch counters uh, and the drinking fountains. They wanted the blacks who were doing the cleaning and the garbage and the trash to be able to be store clerks and get good jobs inside the, the general stores uh, in Birmingham. They, they wanted economic opportunity as well. So there was that pressure. And there was a pressure of a women's movement. Uh, Fifty years ago this year, Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique. Mm-hmm. Uh, John F. Kennedy signed a bill for um, rights to equal pay. Uh, so a huge protest there, which was economic, which was nationwide. There was a consumer movement led by Ralph Nader, uh, very active. People angry that Detroit uh, was producing cars uh, that had defects that led to accidents that killed or injured people. Uh, and that began a whole push for safer products, more uh, consumer product safety commission uh, got set up, uh, more truth in labeling, uh, more aggressive monitoring of food and drugs by the Food and Drug Administration mm-hmm. and the Department of Agriculture. There was an environmental movement. Believe it or not, in August 1971, on Earth Day, 20 million Americans got up off their duffs got out of their couches, got out of their houses, and went out in the streets to protest against the pollution of America's waterways and airways. I, I was going to say, I'm sorry to break in, but I remember that first Earth Day very well. I was about eight, and we went and cleaned up a creek. This was in Kansas, of all places, where you don't think yeah, of Kansas. Well, yeah, we went and cleaned up a creek. I remember it well, the first Earth Day. Well, and you had, well, you may have cleaned up that creek, but that movement cleaned up a heck of a lot more than that. Congress had passed seven pieces of environmental legislation, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, Anti-Toxic Substances Act, and on and on, and And Mm -hmm. all of them were signed by that great tree-hugging environmentalist, Richard Nixon, (laughs) who was a big buddy, a Republican president, who was a big buddy of the captains of industry, great admirer of the American free enterprise system, but who believed that business had to be regulated for the protection of the people, and that the politicians, as Bill Ruckelshaus, the first head of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency told me, a friend of mine, uh, Nixon appointed him. He said, we had to respond. We had to respond to the people. The people were demanding action. So the difference between then and now is partly us. We're sitting on our duff saying, oh, Washington doesn't care about us. Uh, There's too much inequality of income. Uh, Lobbyists have too much power. And I'm saying those things as if I know I do. There are all kinds of opinion polls that will tell you consistently 
uh, sizable majorities of Americans agree with the statements I just made, mm -hmm. but people don't do anything about it today. There's a, there's a very passive attitude. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was a very activist attitude. There was an idealism that, uh, that we could make America a better place and we could do it by taking action ourselves. I don't think the evidence is that people don't care about inequality of income. I think they feel powerless. And, you know, there's a very, um, very interesting comment made to me by a wonderful citizen organizer uh, in, the, in the Southwest. Uh, he said to me, you know, power corrupts, powerlessness also corrupts. <laughs> democracy is the core. Ernie Cortez is his great Latino organizer in the Southwest. Powerlessness also corrupts. If we believe we don't have the power to make Washington respond to us, then it won't. And actually, the Tea Party is a pretty good example of, of that being true. The Tea Party grew out of a kind of popular unhappiness, unhappiness on the right uh, with government, uh, not unhappiness on the center and the left with, with the inequality of income. Uh, but they've had an influence way out of proportion with their popular support because they got active, they got organized, and they got strong financial backing. So mm -hmm. we not only have historical examples that people power can work, we have current examples. Uh, the question is, why are the folks uh, who feel the other way not doing something? Why are they not banding together? Um, yeah, I don't know. Can you answer that question? I mean, it is a really good one. I remember when the uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, movement started, and here around Northampton, where everybody drives a Prius, everybody got these stickers that said, we are the 1%, <laughs> we are the 99%, although I think some of them were the 1%. Uh, and then uh, I haven't heard much about it since. Well, I think a couple of things are true. Uh, and let's just take Occupy for a moment. Unlike the civil rights movement or the environmental movement or the women's movement or the consumer movement um, of the days that I was talking about, uh, Occupy did not have a very clear action agenda. They had a protest, and they were effective in their protest. I mean, we use the terms 1% and 99% today without thinking about it yeah, because they put them, yeah. uh, those terms in our political lexicon. They made economic inequality and the power of the Wall Street banks an issue. But when it came to what do you do about it, they didn't have much of an action agenda. They didn't say, you know, put a cap on CEO salaries, uh, break up the big banks, put a tax on Wall Street transactions, uh, uh, put a super tax on the, the uh, stock options and, and stock shares that are given to CEOs that cause this lopsided inequality, uh, this lopsided inequality of income. And they didn't have a leadership that came forward with whom anybody in the power structure could negotiate. I mean, Martin Luther King was a guy you could negotiate with. John Lewis, who ran the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, he was a guy you could negotiate with uh, you know, on the civil rights issues. Uh, so down in Birmingham, in the end, when the city fathers got tired of the protest, they could go sit down and say, okay, how do we mm -hmm. work this out? And they did. They worked it out. So, so Occupy Wall Street sort of was a, it was structured like a Vermont town meeting. You know, no bosses, no leaders, everybody can say what they want. Well, it sounds good, uh, and it feels good, uh, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. So part of it has been we haven't been organized. There are, by the way, there are lots of organizations at work busily now. There's Americans for Campaign Finance Reform, there's Common Cause, uh, there are various movements for a livable wage, that is to raise the minimum wage. Uh, there are various organizations to... Um, to try to help out homeowners that are stuck in bad loans from banks that won't you know, refinance their loans and stuff like that. But it's all disparate. It hasn't been pulled together. It hasn't been kind of organized. Um, and when I go around the country talking to groups of people about the subjects we're talking about right now, there's a lot of ferment out there. People are looking for leadership. People are itching to get involved. Uh, they're very concerned about where the country is and where it's going. Uh, but they don't quite know how to turn. They're waiting for somebody else to do it. Well, the difference in the 60s was people said, we, we got to do it. Mm -hmm. The pronoun was the first-person pronoun, either mm -hmm. I or we, and not the third-person pronoun. Mm -hmm. That's an attitude that's got to change. Mm -hmm. It looks at times as though the president's going to fool with that, and then he backs off. You know, he started this thing after the last election that he was going to reactivate his campaign organization and make it into a populist organization that would stir people up on issues. But we haven't seen much noise from that uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to come, 
but it's only going to come when people are just so fed up they say we got to we got to fix this ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think one historical moment or factor in this change of attitude that we've been talking about is precisely the rise of the it's sometimes called the new right or it's the Reagan revolution or whatever it is that really sort of emphasized a certain number of principles in the entire kind of American uh, sort of the American basket of principles, and that is one that emphasizes uh, liberty and free enterprise and these kinds of things, and especially an antipathy against state intervention. I mean, I remember when I was going to college, and this was in the 80s, people still talked about socialism without a sneer on their face. Now you cannot do that at all. It's not possible. And many people just feel, again, I'm saying in this sort of post-Reagan era, that the kind of income transfers that people might have proposed in the 70s or 60s uh, nobody's really interested in them anymore. What, what impact do you think that the, the rise of this, this new kind of conservative movement had? Well, I want to tell you one of my great discoveries in this book was it began before Reagan, and it didn't really begin with the right, it began with business. There was a movement on the right started by Barry Goldwater and, and the people around him back in the late 50s and the early 60s, but what really changed the ball game on the policy issues you're talking about, taxation, all the economic pie issues, how do you cut up the pie? Do you raise the minimum wage? Do you lower the estate tax? Do you lower the tax system? Do you deregulate industry? Do you give management power in the process of bankruptcy so they can cripple trade unions? All those very, very important decisions that are written in the law, and everybody says it's a free market and it's freedom, baloney. The rules that are written, where the fair line and the foul line is driven, whether how many balls and strikes you get, who calls the balls and strikes, mm-hmm. those are all critical to the way the market operates. Mm-hmm. And what was going on in the 60s and 70s was there was public pressure from the belly of the land, from the middle class, to make sure that the rules were written and the balls and strikes were called in a way that was fair to the greatest number of people, not just to the people of power. And this caused a backlash from business. And the business people go to work politically before Reagan comes to power. It's very important. The dynamic change, in fact, to me, one of the greatest discoveries and embarrassments of my book was discovering that the change occurred in the late 70s while I was running the Washington Bureau of the New York Times and when Jimmy Carter was in the White House and when the Democrats controlled both houses in Congress. So it didn't begin on the right. It began from pressure from business. What happened was because of all that pressure from the middle class movements that I mentioned, Lewis Powell, a famous corporate attorney from Richmond, Virginia, so famous he became head of the American Bar Association, and a very close friend of the people at the top of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, was very worried that the American free enterprise system was uh, under what he said was mortal threat from all these middle-class movements. And he told that to the guys uh, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and they said, why don't you write it down? Powell wrote what is now called, by historians, the Powell Memorandum in August of 1971, and that's before Richard Nixon, as president, appointed Powell to the Supreme Court. What Powell said was, Mr. Business Leader, Mr. CEO, you are getting your tail whipped in the political arena. The labor unions, the consumer movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, all these movements are beating you, and they're going to destroy the American free enterprise system. What you need to do is to organize, pool your money, have a long-term plan, go after your foes aggressively, identify them, chase them out of office. And what was happened was amazing. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce circulated that memorandum secretly, privately, to American business leaders. Within four or five months, the business roundtable was formed. It's now the single most powerful voice of major corporations in the political arena in in, uh, uh, Washington. It did not exist before the Powell memo. When Powell wrote his memo, there were only 175 companies that even had offices in Washington. By 1979... Before Reagan was elected, there were 2,425. There were 50,000 people working for business trade associations. There were 9,000 registered corporate lobbyists. There were 8,000 corporate PR people. There was a corporate lobbying army. And in the Congress of 1978 and 79 and 80, they changed the direction of American policy. Jimmy Carter wanted to raise the taxes on corporations. 
that Congress lowered the taxes on corporations. Jimmy Carter wanted to close the loopholes for the wealthy. That lobbying army, that Powell army, went to work on Congress, and they actually dropped the capital gains tax from 48% to 28%. They established the 401k program, which has shifted the financial burden for paying for retirement for most Americans from corporate books to the pocketbooks and checkbooks of average people. They changed the bankruptcy law to put management in charge of the bankruptcy procedure, and it had devastating effects in the 1990s and 2000s when you had the steel companies and the oil airlines and a number of other companies declaring bankruptcy to restructure themselves, which basically meant ripping up their union contracts, cutting the pay rates, cutting the benefits uh, for their workers. They changed the interest laws. Up until that time, states had usury laws, which put a ceiling on the interest rates that you could charge on a mortgage or on a car loan or on a student loan or on a credit card. And Wall Street said, we can't make money that way. We want to loan to a whole bunch of people who are not such good credit risk. We need to be able to charge them not 6 7 8% interest. We need to be able to charge them 18 19 20% interest rate. They got Congress to pass a law which overruled the state usury laws. That set the groundwork for the subprime crisis that occurred uh, you know, 20 years later. There were a whole slew of laws passed in that Congress. And then when Reagan got in office, he kept passing more of them. Uh, they passed laws that allowed you to get 100% financing on your house instead of putting down 20% down. Uh, they set up the secondary mortgage market, which was central to the housing boom and bust. There are all kinds of details that are a little hard to go into in this kind of a conversation, but I, I found out and lay out in the book. That all turned around because of the organized political effort of the business leaders of this country. Mm -hmm. That's who began to steal the American dream. Mm -hmm. And Alan Greenspan, when he was running the Federal Reserve uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s, continued that process. Uh, and there are other people who were involved. Bob Rubin, the Treasury Secretary, under Bill Clinton, was a deregulator as well. And he helped destroy the Glass-Steagall law, which had been operating since the 1930s, protecting the deposits of ordinary citizens mm -hmm. in commercial banks, keeping them separate from investment banks. The investment bankers, and Rubin was a former investment banker, they didn't like that. They wanted the freedom to grab all that money and, and play with it in the derivatives game, and they got into it. So there are a whole bunch of people, but it starts back in the late 70s under the Democrats, under Jimmy Carter, because there was a power shift from middle-class power to the revolt of the bosses, to business power. And mm -hmm. we've been with it ever since. We have it today. Wall Street is enormously powerful uh, in Washington, and it gets its way. It's not that people can't talk about socialism or even forget socialism, just simply making capitalism operate more fairly. Uh, it's not they can't talk about it. It's they can't get anywhere because they keep getting blocked by these very powerful lobbying armies that are operating in Washington, which is one of the reasons why I believe in people power from outside of Washington, forcing Washington to change. Politicians listen if they're afraid they're going to lose their office, if they're afraid of the <laughs> people who are organized out in the country. They mm -hmm. listen. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if people don't stay organized between elections, then they listen to the lobbyists who are working there 365 days a year between elections. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask this question. It, it just occurs to me as a historian, it wasn't the intention of these business leaders under Carter to destroy the American dream, was it? They, they wanted to save free enterprise, right? I mean, is that, would, it, would it be, I mean, they didn't go into this cynically, did they? Or, or do you think they did? No, I, I don't think there was a cabal to destroy the American dream. Uh, they were out to protect their own power and wealth. Now, if you, if you go concentrate your own power and wealth, the, the consequence of that is going to be it's always going to be cast in terms of we're saving free enterprise. The argument is always going to be this is freedom, this is the American way, this is free enterprise, this is capitalism, this is what has generated growth. And there's a lot to be said for that. But we had excellent growth when we had high taxes under Eisenhower and Kennedy. We had excellent growth when we had much more regulation under Eisenhower and Nixon, two Republican presidents. We had excellent growth when we had the government involved much more in the economy coming out of World War II, much better growth back in those days with all those things going on, and we still had American capitalism, we still had free enterprise. Mm -hmm. We had much better growth then than now. Mm -hmm. But the argument is now, no, the government's the problem, high interest rates are the problem, uh, and the track record just simply doesn't support that. Mm 
Mm-hmm. The historical facts don't support that. Mm-hmm. But again, a skeptic might say the world is a very different place now what? than it was in the. A skeptic might say that the world is a very different place now than it was under Eisenhower. Meaning? Well, meaning for one, uh, there are other powers which can compete with the United States economically. Well, and, and, and so skeptic- we are in an environment that is that is really quite different. Yeah, well, the skeptic would be right, and I'm really glad you raised that question, because that question troubled me. In fact, I said it, you know. Uh, really, what's happened in America over the last 34 years, 30, 40 years, is really the result of the way the world has changed. We satisfied the world at the end of World War II as a colossus. Nobody could compete with us. Our industries could do what they wanted. They could pay high wages, and it didn't matter. They'd make profits. And mm-hmm. so on. You know, for the 15 years coming out of World War II, from 45 to 60, or even 20 years to 65, you know, that's true. But by 1960, our share of the world trade had been cut in half. Mm -hmm. So Germany and Western Europe and Japan were coming back already in that period. So when we start talking about the period um, through the 60s into the late 70s, we were facing competition at that time, facing serious enough competition so that Reagan, when he came in in 1980, won an election in 1980, set out to try to limit Japanese car imports to this country. So it was still going on. But the more important thing is this. If, in fact, the problem for us today is that the world has changed and there's cheap labor and efficient production in China and there are all kinds of software companies in India uh, and there are bright people working in Brazil and the Philippines and the third world and so forth, then we should see little Americas all around the world. Europe should look like America. And there is increasing income inequality in those countries, but nothing like ours, nothing like ours. Um, The the economists have a thing called the Gini coefficient. Yeah, sure. And and it measures measures the degree of income inequality in, in a society. The highest Gini coefficient of any other advanced country it, it, and it ranges between zero and one. If it's one, it's like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates own the whole economy. <laughs> if it's zero, it means everybody has the same income. Mm-hmm. Right? So the lower it is, the more even your economy is, and the higher it is, the more unequal your economy is. We're off the charts from the others. The highest uh, competing country in the world on the Gini coefficient is about 0.30 or 31 or 32. We are 0.45. So we're 50% worse than, than any place else. But what's really important is this. If it were what the skeptic would say, then you have to explain how Germany can do what it's doing. Germany, since they face the same competition we do. They face the same Chinese labor market, the same Indian globalization, the same movement of technology, all the same conditions that we face. In the, since 1985, the German companies have raised the salaries of their average workers five times faster than American companies have. American companies said they couldn't do it anymore or they'd go broke. So all those German companies, Siemens and BMW and Airbus and all those companies, they should all be broke, but they're not. So there's something wrong with that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next thing that's interesting is not only are they not broke, But from 2000 to 2010, when America had a $6 trillion cumulative trade deficit, we bought $6 trillion more stuff from the world, from China, from India, mostly from China, but from other places around the world. Germany had a $2 trillion trade surplus. They sold $2 trillion more stuff to the rest of the world than we did. Wait a minute, that's backwards. If they're paying their workers higher then they should have the deficit, and if we're paying our workers less, then we should have the surplus. So there's something wrong about the explanation that the wage levels and the income levels are really the result of globalization. And then if you want to go a step further, what's really interesting is that we now have, we've lost so many manufacturing jobs, which used to be the core of our economy, the strength of our competitiveness, and the base of really good living standards for middle-class workers in America, not just assembly line workers, but the designers and the uh, engineers that make the design the products and make the products, the people who sell them, everybody in the economy in, in, in the middle, people making anywhere from thirty to $100,000 to $110,000 a year, okay? 
we've lost so many jobs in the manufacturing sector that only 9% of our workforce today is in manufacturing. In Germany, 21%. If we had 21% of our workforce in manufacturing, number one, we wouldn't have the trade deficit that we have. We, w we wouldn't have the inequality of income that we have, and we wouldn't have the unemployment we have. Like Germany has consistently had lower unemployment than we have, even through the downturn here. And they've had better growth over the last 40 years than we have. So there's something wrong with the traditional explanation. And I think what's wrong is it's, the, it's this disparity in income. The economy is driven not by people's investments of the wealthy people. It is driven by mass consumer demand. If middle-class Americans don't make <clears throat> excuse me, don't make good pay, don't make good wages, good salaries, and have plenty of money to spend, there's not the consumer demand to drive this economy. And that's what we're watching right now. Business isn't out of cash. Business has money to invest. American corporations are sitting on a couple of trillion dollars of cash. They're buying back their own stock instead of building plants and equipment. What does that tell you? They don't see the demand that requires them to increase their production. Our problem is... That's why we get back to the issue you raised earlier. Why should we care if there's great inequality of income? We should care because, number one, it's bad for the economy. It's bad for growth. We all get hurt by it, mm -hmm. even those of us who have pretty good jobs. We'd all get paid more, and we'd all be, uh, we'd all be in an economy which had <clears throat> more drive and more optimism if there were greater sharing of wealth. And there are ample economic studies that show that. Mm -hmm. So I take it you're not a big fan of austerity. Well, uh, <laughs> that was sort of a rhetorical question. <laughs> Our problem is that we never talk austerity when we're in the midst of a boom. That's when you yeah, should cut back. That's true. That's the time true. you should be spending is when you're in a trough. Mm -hmm. No, I, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, they, uh, every almost every uh, recession we've come out of since World War II has been helped by government spending, whether mm -hmm. it's spending on defense or spending on highways or or spending on on aircraft or spending on on space shuttles or whatever. Uh, all of that is a, is a stimulus to the economy to grow, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and economists on both sides know that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, we, we're just getting a different story from Congress now, and it flies in the face of Economics 101. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learned that at Williams way back in the years ago, <laughs> I don't want to call. That and a lot more. So let me ask this question then. If there is, I mean, I think we've established that there is this large income inequality and inequality of wealth, that, that more of this increase in productivity that we've enjoyed over the past 40 years, diminished as it might be compared to the period before that, uh, is now ending up in the hands of a, a smaller and smaller group of people. Where does that money go? Well, it goes into making more money. I mean, uh, Warren, Warren Buffett is the great expert on that. He says the people who make money uh, are making money with, with money. And not only are they making more money with money, uh, but they're getting taxed less. The, capital, the, 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 the tax on capital gains, which are the gains in stock, the gains in timberland investments, the gains in any kind of investments, you know, it's now 20%. Right. Top tax is 20%, uh, you know, and the top tax on, on income, earned income, that is, if you go out and have a job and earn it, uh, you know, it's now 39%. Mm -hmm. So that's wacko. Tell me about I mean, it. Buffett is saying, look, I'm paying a lower tax than my secretary. Sure. I'm paying a lower tax rate. He pays more in taxes because he makes so much money. Sure. But he says, I'm paying a lower tax rate than my secretary. Sure. So, I guess what I was driving at here is that um, – it's it's probably true that for middle class people, that is people making between, I guess, the figures you gave are between thirty and one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year, that they are going to spend more income on more consumption of things. But Warren Buffett is not going to spend his additional income on more consumption. He has everything he wants, so he's going to take that money and he's going to do what with it? He's going to put it in the stock market. He's going to invest it, right? He's going to invest it. And what are the people who get it are going to do with it? If you look if you look at the stock market. Well, at the moment, it's down. The last couple of weeks, it's down, but it's up near record levels. Uh, and the last, what's interesting is people think economic recovery is going to level things. Economic recovery is going to help some people get back to work, some companies get back to work, some new companies being formed. It's going to help the health of our economy as a whole. But in the four years since we hit bottom back in 2009, corporate profits have risen 20.1% a year on average. So that's 80% over four years. The median household income has risen 1.4%. 
per year. So the people who have got money and make more money, like Buffett, and they invest it, they're getting more money and they're continuing to accumulate more wealth, some of which they're spending on 350-foot yachts and 10,000-square-foot homes and office staffs in their own home and that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the market for butlers and, and valets has, has improved tremendously. So if you happen to be in that business or, or, or gates for gated communities and things right. like that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's a good market to be in. As a matter of fact, Citigroup, I couldn't believe this. In 2005, Citigroup put out a, a, a brochure to wealthy people. It's wealth clients and the wealth management is what they call it and they said uh basically don't bother investing in companies that produce for the middle class or even the upper middle class because there's so much concentrated purchasing power in the top one or two percent 40 percent of the purchasing power uh in the market is in the top one or two percent so invest in tiffany's and luxury yachts and so forth citigroup said in that brochure we haven't seen the same inequality of wealth in a great power since 16th century Spain. Hmm. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is not just a bunch of liberal economists like Joe Stiglitz at, at Columbia or Paul Krugman at Princeton. This, this is a recognizable fact by people who are managing money. So what happens to the people who make money? They take the money to make more money. Well, right. But I guess what I'm saying is there's an intermediary step there. I have a friend who's a fund manager, and apparently he uh, he actually was a Russian historian, of all things. And then he left Russian history, and now he manages the funds. He manages something like $15 billion a year. And what he does is he takes people's money, and these are usually in, in, institutional investors and people with a lot of money, uh, and he uh, invests it for them in um, companies. That is, you know, he tries, he gives the money to companies that are growing. So essentially, I guess the thing people probably don't understand, and I don't understand at all, is that these very wealthy people get this money. They certainly don't spend it on – you can only have a certain number of butlers and 45-foot yachts. And so that excess, which is most of it, ends up back in the economy. Yeah, but it doesn't – see, here's where the problem is. It doesn't end up at the moment in the economy in the sense of generating jobs. It ends up in the stock price. And so stock prices go up. There's mm-hmm. so much money that stock prices get bid up. Investment values get bid up. High-end houses and yachts get bid up. And by the way, we're not talking 45-foot yachts. We're talking 200, 300, 400. <laughs> I've never yachts. seen okay. such a thing, no, but I'll really thank you. It's very important to understand that. <laughs> you cannot believe how expensive these things are. And, and, that's, and that does not drive the economy. Mm-hmm. The problem is... The problem is they invest in the companies, and the question is, do the companies then invest that in expanded production? And the answer is the companies do not invest that in expanded production unless there is demand, unless people want more refrigerators, unless they want more cars, unless they want more, uh, unless they want more iPads. Mm-hmm. You know, now Apple is doing well. People want more iPads because that's going to a segment of the economy uh, upper middle class, largely fairly well-educated people with disposable income to spend, uh, and a company like that is doing well. So there are niches that are doing well, mm-hmm. and young people are spending time and money uh, on Facebook and, and on social networks, and then maybe they're responding to the advertising there. So there are certain niches in the economy that are working, but in terms of the economy as a whole, that money isn't going, as you put it, into the economy as an engine. It's mm-hmm. actually driving something. It's going in the economy. And right now, for the last three or four years, American businesses have been sitting on $2 trillion of capital, not spending it. Mm-hmm. So the money coming from the wealthy into the stock that's driving the stock price up is not generating growth in the real economy. It's generating artificial growth in the financial sector. Mm-hmm. And the financial sector has been booming for the last 20 or 30 years. It is almost always the mark of a civilization that is in trouble when the financial sector becomes more important than the production sector. Mm -hmm. It happened if you go back and look at the history of Holland, you look at the history of Spain, you look at the history of England and so forth. You look at the great empires. Two things happen that are characteristic of empires that are in trouble, civilizations that are in trouble. One is the financial sector becomes a bigger and bigger part of the economy and it, it, it makes profit for itself, but that doesn't translate into real growth for the economy. And the second thing that happens is what historians call uh, imperial overstretch. <clears throat> and that is that a Spain or a Holland or a Britain or an America 
starts projecting its military power, uh, either through building an empire or building through what uh, uh, Chalmers Johnson, the American uh, analyst, calls the empire of bases. We don't have colonies overseas. We have bases all around the world. And we get into wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan uh, and, and Vietnam uh, and other places around the world. Uh, and we do it to the point where we are spending more on the military than our productive economy can support. Uh, it, that's called overstretch, going beyond what uh, we're capable of supporting with our economy. What's interesting uh, here is that of all people, Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general, mm -hmm. commander of the American victory in Europe, later Republican president, not only warned of the dangers of the power of the military-industrial complex, he warned of the dangers of, of our spending too much uh, on our military without worrying about our, our economy uh, and what the economy could support. And he talked very clearly about guns uh, and, and butter in ways that, that we should listen to today. This is Eisenhower in 1953, 60 years ago, to, ascent, to amass military power without regard to our economic capacity would be to defend ourselves against one kind of disaster by inviting another. And he goes on to explain that if we try to defend ourselves against, say, the disaster of terrorism, and we overdo it, and we put too much money into the military, build too many bases abroad, have too many people there, have to pay for the health care and the retirement of too many service people, uh, and so forth, and the cost of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is going to run us in the end over $4 trillion. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you took that off the national debt, we wouldn't be, even be having an argument this fall uh, about whether or not to raise the debt ceiling. Eisenhower goes on to explain what he means about inviting another disaster is weakening the domestic economy. Mm -hmm. So we've got going right now two of the worst symptoms of any historic civilizations. A, a runaway financial sector in which wealthy people are doing just what you said, investing their money with your fund who's running that $15 billion hedge fund, which is not generating much productivity or wealth for the rest of the economy. And we got too many bases overseas. And we've got a defense spending level now in America that is actually higher than it was in the Cold War uh, when we faced the nuclear-armed enemy much more serious enemy than terrorism. I'm not saying terrorism isn't serious. We mm -hmm. can do something about it. But it's not the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union had thousands of, of, of nuclear warheads aimed at us. Uh, we're not facing that today. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of what we're being told about the way our economy works uh, and what's sensible for our civilization no longer makes sense to me after the work I did on who stole the American dream. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're about out of time, but I have to ask you this, and I, I think you probably expect the question, uh, how do we fix it? Well, my editor asked me that question <laughs> when I turned in my first draft, and yeah. I said, listen, her name is Kate Medina. I said, listen, Kate, I'm a, I'm a reporter. I call balls and strikes. Um, I, I call it fair or foul. I, I go back, I analyze the... Uh, the facts, I give you the facts, it's up to the policymakers, uh, to Congress, to the voters, to the think tanks, uh, to the White House, it's up to them to do the policy. I don't do how do you fix it. <laughs> Rick, you can't do that. You've just described us uh, being in a ditch. Uh, you, you've got to, you've got to help us out. You've got to provide something. And I resisted for a while, and then my true chief editor, my wife, Susan Zog, said, Rick Cates, right. So in the last two chapters of my book, you've got Hedrick Smith's handy-dandy 10-point plan to save America. <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing because I, I, I say it because I feel a little bit awkward about it. Listen, Marshall, it doesn't take a genius. I, I, these are not my ideas, a lot of them. Uh, I, I went out and looked at what I thought were sensible ideas from other people. It doesn't take a genius to, to, to understand that if we're going to be globally competitive, we've got to modernize our highways, our ports, our, our airports, and so forth, and that would put a lot of people to work and generate a demand for steel. Um, and it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out that it, we have a crazy tax system that we need to fix uh, to give corporations a lower tax for money they make overseas than, than what, they, what they make uh, when, they, when they do their business in America. That's nuts. That's one major reason why so many American jobs are going overseas. Corporations can make more money, and they can go back to their shareholders and say we're doing it. It doesn't make any sense not to invest in the education of our kids. 
and we're now raising interest rates on student loans and making it harder for middle-class kids uh, to get to college. There are a whole bunch of things you can do. But the main things, and these are my ideas, the main things that we've got to restore the political middle in this country, and we've got to get uh, uh, intelligent people, the kind of people who listen uh, to your program and, and read the kind of books we're talking about, mine and others. There are others, uh, good books on this subject as well, uh, as you know. Um, people have got to get active again. If people continue to say Washington can't be changed, uh, then it's not going to be changed. As, as Ernie Cortez says, the sense of powerlessness corrupts. It uh, corrupts our democracy at the court. So my ideas are we've got to fix the campaign finance system, and that may require a constitutional amendment, and 16 or 17 states have already passed resolutions to move in that direction. Uh, we've got to put, we got to give power to Congress to regulate uh, campaign finance, and we've got to force uh, disclosure of who's giving money to whom. We've got to fix the gerrymandered political system. We not only have distorted results of our elections, more people voted for Democratic candidates for the House of Representatives in the last election then voted for Republicans. But Republicans came out with a 33-seat majority. And the bulk of that difference is caused by gerrymandering. Uh, the part partisan manipulation of the boundaries of congressional and legislative districts all over the country is a scandal. It's been with us practically since uh, our earliest days. It's called gerrymandering because of elders Gary, the mm -hmm. Massachusetts governor who first tried it, but it is now so sophisticated because of computer software, uh, it's much more efficient, much more unfair. It takes the contest out of our elections. Lots of middle-class people don't get involved. It creates the polarization of our politics. You have safe districts in each party, and more and more extreme candidates uh, run and win, and when they get to Washington, they can't agree. So if we fix gerrymandering, we can help restore of the political middle. But we can't do any of that unless we get involved. And so that's the heart of it. My last six words in my book are, we the people must take action. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I come out. Um, and I know I'm a Washington reporter. All my buddies uh, in the Washington press corps say, Rick, you're crazy. The people will never do it. The people will never get active again. And I say to them, you're crazy if you think Washington is going to reform itself. It's not. Yeah. The people in power in Washington, the people in power on Wall Street, like the situation the way it is. If other people want to change it, we, the other people, have to do something about it. Um, from your lips to God's ears, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish it were that simple, but let me tell you, Marshall, I am trying hard. I am really concerned as a citizen. I am concerned that we're in a very dangerous place in our country. It goes way beyond whether or not we're going to have a big fight this fall over the budget, over the debt ceiling. We can't solve our problems as a country, and it's gone on year after year after year. We have got to change that. or yeah. we're, We are already in trouble, and we're not going to pull out of it. We're like a plane that's starting to dive. We've got to pull ourselves out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hope we do, and I think we will. I mean, everything that you say rings true to me uh, in the sense that we live in a world that's very hard for ordinary people like myself to understand. I mean, you mentioned the tax code. I... I uh, you know, I have a Ph.D., and I don't have the really even the slightest understanding of the way that it works. It's just bizarrely complicated to me. Um, I'm certainly happy to pay taxes. I really am. I'm glad I pay taxes. But the way I pay them and the way most people pay them, and we all pay different amounts and for different reasons, and there are exemptions and all kinds of crazy things, and I just don't get it. I mean, again, maybe it's just me, but I'm... Well, no, it's not just you. Uh, the tax system is deliberately it. complicated because the people who have figured out loopholes uh, for corporations and banks want it complicated. They want you not to understand. Yeah, it they does seem like a rigged game. It really it really does. It, it does seem like that it advantages people who have experts. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, appearing before a magistrate or a judge. You know, if you have the best lawyer, you're very likely to win. You have more lawyers. You can kind of out-lawyer people. I mean, I think it's similar with the tax system and a lot of other things is that, you know, or just more generally like knowledge of education in the United States. I mean, I'm a college teacher. I was for a long time. And you know, if you know how the college system works, you're going to do a lot better than somebody who doesn't. So it kind of, you know, it, it really, it perpetuates a certain kind of inequality, you know, where knowledge kind of bunches up in, in a group of people that know how the game works because they set it up and other people don't. And, uh, yeah, that's disturbing. I, I think anybody would admit that's disturbing. Well, you got it just right. Yeah. There are people taking advantage of the system because they set it up. Right now, 
the Treasury Department estimates there are $1.2 trillion worth of corporate tax loopholes in the corporate tax Yeah, program. that's not good. If we shut half of them, the deficit would go away tomorrow. Yeah. If we shut half of those corporate tax loopholes, the deficit would be over. And you don't hear much talk about that at all. Mm. There's some, but not much. That's what we should be talking about. Yeah, yeah. We're on the wrong agenda in Washington. Yeah. Well, um, Hedrick, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Today we've been talking with Hedrick Smith, who's written the terrific book, Who Stole the American Dream? It's a very provocative book. It's a deep book. It has a, you know, a really deep historical insight. It, it also is by someone who knows everything about the way Washington works. He's interviewed bunches of people from you know, some very powerful ones to sort of ordinary men and women on the street. Uh, so in that way, it's a kind of journalistic triumph. He's seen things from lots of different angles. And, you know, I, I really highly recommend that anybody who's, who's interested in this, and everybody should be, of course, should should pick up this book and read it. So, uh, Hedrick, is there going to be a documentary on this book? Are you going to build it? Well, I'm talking to people about, uh, about doing a documentary. Part of the problem is just what you said. It's so broad and sweeping. I talked to Frontline about it, and they produce an hour here and an hour yeah. there. And we sort of agreed it would take four hours or six hours, and we're trying to figure out whether we can get it down to two, get enough of it down to two hours. So there may be. Keep keep um, keep your eyes watching on Frontline. But at the moment, we haven't yet come up with the exact plan for it. I should go on one of these crowdfunding sites and ask people for money. I mean, you really might be able to well, raise. Well, I would donate $10 idea. to this. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a, I, I noticed somebody did that for a documentary. Yeah, they do it all the time, actually. It's pretty common. And if you have a good one, you know, and you do, you have a lot of cred. You've produced wonderful yeah. things in the past. I mean, you know, you get, you get 250,000 people to give you $10. you got a lot of cash. <laughs> yeah, I could, uh, we, could, we could do it with that. All right, well. $250,000 $250, people with $10 cash, that would definitely That would do it. Yeah, there you go. So I encourage you to go one of these sites. Anyway, so, uh, Herrick, I want to thank you for being on the New Books Network today. Uh, a real pleasure, uh, and I appreciate your interest in the book and your very positive comments. It was a pleasure to talk to you.